Welcome back to Case of the Sunday Scaries. I'm Elise. And I'm Annie. And I think we are both very excited to be saying that. It has been quite some time since you heard from us, but all because of the room I'm sitting in currently, which is our new podcast studio. Well, what? So exciting. (laughs) It has been a labor of love and maybe a gray hair or two. But soon, guys, very, very soon, we will be offering video so you can watch along with us, watch all of the pictures over the case files that we're discussing right on our YouTube channel. And hopefully, you will all enjoy this podcast studio as much as I am because it is nice to have a little space dedicated just for Case of the Sunday Scaries. I know. We still need to come up with a cool name. I've seen some people message us on Instagram with some awesome names, but maybe we'll do a little vote because we need help. Our minds are fully uh, taken by the podcast and the electrical wires and everything that Elise has been doing. Oh, guys, let me tell you, if you are not a person that knows how to delegate like myself, learn. Because I have been trying to fancy myself an audiovisual production person and it has gone not well. So we have someone coming to finalize all of the video stuff so we can make sure our YouTube channel is in tip-top shape before we start releasing episodes. But we didn't want to wait that long to get back to you. And so Annie is going to be taking over the mic today to cover a case that has been been in the news for years, but has recently had a bit of, of a resurgence. But before that, Annie, I have to ask you, since it's been a minute since we've been on these mics, I noticed I do some weird pre-podcast recording little (laughs) habits that don't make any (laughs) sense. For instance, no one is going to see this. And as far as I know, unless we're somewhere deep in the metaverse, which we're not, you can't smell me. But I refuse to start this podcast without brushing my teeth and putting perfume on. Like, what? That makes no sense. Okay, I definitely, I do some weird things. Perfume is one of mine. I have to smell good. I think it's like a self-esteem thing where even though no one can smell us, we want to smell good. And I lather up the face moisturizer. Not that (laughs) anyone's going to notice, but I'm like, I want to be smelling good and have really soft skin. It makes absolutely no sense. I was like, what is the psychology behind these little rituals that we've put in place for ourselves that truly benefit no one but ourselves? I mean, I'm sure your skin is very happy that you're moisturized. It is winter after all. But yeah, it, right. it, makes, it makes no sense. And I never noticed I did it until today when I came out here to the studio and ran back inside to do the nervous pee break, of course, and then give myself a little spritz of perfume. Always. Like, Who is this for? I am alone in this studio right now. You're trying to impress Gracie. She doesn't even really come out to the studio. I think she's a little nervous about the garage still, which actually... On second thought, that makes me a little bit nervous. Maybe I need to do a little saging before we start recording in here. Absolutely. I'm all down for saging. I think that'd be fun. We'd have a little saging seance. Not really a seance because we're not trying to summon anything. But yeah, Let's not summon anything because I will tell you, someone (laughs) is summoning something. Because I am now up to three cats, three different cats that have made a home in my backyard at any given time. I don't know these cats. I don't know their owners. But I walked out today. Gracie was whining. And there was an orange cat just sunning herself or himself on the rocks. You guys, I don't know if I'm putting out something that says, like, all stray animals come to me. But I am starting a menagerie totally that are. I didn't anticipate. <laughs> but with all that good little <laughs> catch up, I am excited to hear about this case because it is one that I haven't really looked into for the past couple of years because it's been a little bit cold and we all know how I feel about those cases. So I'm excited to hear and get a refresher and then hear all the updates. Yeah. So like Elise said, today's case is not one that's new. In fact, it happened back in 2017. But recently there was a huge update and I was so excited for this update. I was blowing up Elise's phone. My mom was FaceTiming me. I was all over Instagram. This recent update to a five, almost six-year-old case is really exciting because I think we always have that fear when it comes to horrendous cases that the perpetrator is going to get away. This case was kind of seeming like that might happen. They had a couple of people in mind. I'll get into that a little bit later. But when I saw the update, my jaw was literally on the floor, and I was so excited to finally cover this for you guys. Today, I am covering the murders of Abigail Williams, a.k.a. Abby, who was 13 years old at the time of her murder, 
and Liberty German, a.k.a. Libby, who was 14 years old at the time of her murder. This case is also known as the Delphi murders. Delphi, Indiana is located about 70 miles northwest of Indianapolis, and up until 2017, it was a pretty quiet little Midwest town with a population of a little over 3,000 people. I know that size town. I sure do, because that's about the size of the town I grew up in, <laughs> which means everybody knows everybody and everyone's business is your business. Of course. According to the town sheriff, Toby Leesonby, it was a place where no one even locked their doors. It was a super trusting community that was shattered by the events that took place. Today, if you hear the word Delphi, you immediately think of the murders. The murders of two young girls that happened just before Valentine's Day on February 13th, 2017. It was a warm, sunny day in Indiana, and if you're from the Midwest, you know that a sunny day in February is rare. The Midwest is gloomy during certain months. I grew up in southern Indiana, so I'm allowed to say that. <laughs> Delphi Community Middle School had the day off due to a snow day. Elise, do you know what a snow day is? Well, where I grew up in Alaska, snow day meant that you had the day off because you had gotten like six to eight inches overnight of snow, and there's no way you're getting the school bus through that. Yes, and in Indiana or other Midwest states, a snow day in the spring is kind of a built-in freebie, where if you don't have the day off due to snow in the winter, you get a free day off school. And that's exactly what happened. Abby and Libby were going to take full advantage of this gorgeous day, and they decided to soak in the fresh air at a place called the Monon High Bridge. The two girls had gotten close because they were teammates during their seventh grade volleyball year. Abby was quiet around strangers, but loud once she got around her friends. One friend said that she dreamt of doing something within forensics and police work, which is extra hard to hear. She was a saxophone player and a volleyball fan. She enjoyed reading and going on family camping trips. Libby was described as being a band geek who was outgoing and smart by friends and family. Libby was huge on science. Her obituary painted an image of an active, fun-loving sports star who played volleyball, softball, soccer, and swimming, but she also had a creative side and loved to paint and do crafts. Can I just say, I wish I had the energy for all of that. <laughs> Those teenagers, they're unstoppable at that age. Both girls were close with their family, and they were just two little Midwest girls who had their whole life ahead of them. There's a pretty popular picture that I'll share, and it's the two girls in the backseat of a car wearing cute smiley face hats, and it really just captures their innocence. They have these big cheesy grins on their faces, and they're just totally adorable. And soon, like I said, guys, you can follow along with all of these pictures that we're talking about. But of course, Annie will post them on our Instagram at A Case of Sunday Scary so that you can reference what we're referencing for now. But she is right. They look so innocent. After that sleepover on Sunday night, remember, they had the snow day on that Monday. The girls were dropped off at the Monon High Bridge by Libby's older sister, Kelsey. And this happened around 1 p.m. The plan was for the girls to hang out, enjoy the nice weather, and then meet back at the parking lot around 3 o'clock for pickup. The Moan on High Bridge, where the girls went that day, used to be considered a treasure. It was this really cool historic landmark. You're shaking your head. Have your standards low. It's Indiana. <laughs> okay, I, I'm going to describe this place to you guys. Yes, it is beautiful. I guess I understand the appeal of going there. However, I'm not a parent, but just as a normal 35-year-old, I don't think I would feel comfortable walking across this bridge. It looks like old train trestle tracks, and then it has these freestanding platforms that lead to absolutely nowhere except a horrible accident, potentially. You could just like, mm -hmm. act, you know, take one wrong step back and you are falling down, I don't know how long, but it looks like into quite the precipice. The bridge, though sketchy to look at, was used for things like senior pictures, engagement photos, wedding photos, whatever. It was just kind of this unique backdrop with really pretty nature and woods surrounding it. The Monon High Trail is located in the woods, a short little jaunt up from the trailhead and parking lot. It's not crowded. In fact, on this day in particular, it looked to be completely empty from the stories that Libby and Abby were posting on their Snapchat. And around 2 o'clock p.m., they were doing a little photo shoot I'll also put this picture because Abby is kind of being a little moody teenager. It's a gorgeous day out, you can tell, um, but she's on the bridge, and it was posted to Libby's Snapchat around 2.11. 
A few hours had passed, and it was now time for the girls to get picked up. Libby's dad called his daughter to let her know that he was close. This was around 3.15. She didn't answer her phone. He calls again, literally two minutes later, because he is now at the parking lot. And again, his phone call goes unanswered. He gives it a few minutes, and at 3.30, he gets out of his car to go look for the girls. He walks up that little trailhead. He walks through the woods. And by 4 o'clock, after walking down the main path that the girls should have been on or close to, he calls Libby's grandmother and basically calls for backup. Libby's family calls Abby's family to help. Side note, it gets really dark in Indiana really early in the winter months. I want to say like 5, 5.30, so time is not on their side because this is now 4 o'clock. The families all head to the location and they divide up to look for the girls, but they don't have any luck. At 5.30 p.m., Abby and Libby are reported missing and law enforcement and the community get involved. I must say that part's pretty impressive how quickly law enforcement stepped up. We have heard in so many cases where they make you wait 24 hours or they blame the victims and say, oh, they're just teenager girls doing their thing. But surprisingly, the law enforcement didn't chalk it up to two preteens who ran away. Um, I don't know if it's a small town vibe or just the uneasiness everyone kind of felt, but they all went to the location and conducted a search. Well, and it seems like these girls were so involved with activities and had seemingly a very good family life and home life. So it would make sense that they wouldn't chalk it up to someone that maybe was living, you know, a teenager living on the wild side a little bit or had strife going on at home. I mean, my goodness, she's in sports year round. These are responsible young girls. So it would make sense that they wouldn't chalk it up to runaways. But I would wish that in all cases they didn't chalk it up to just being a runaway. Agree. At first, Carroll County Sheriff Toby Leesonby said there was no reason to believe the girls were in immediate danger. My only thought here is because of the terrain, maybe the assumption was that one of them got hurt, maybe they twisted an ankle, maybe their phones died, and one girl didn't want to leave the other. Whatever the reason being, they didn't want to alarm the community, so made this kind of vague, blanket statement where, yes, they're missing, no, there's no reason to be concerned. Regardless of their reasoning, the search resumed the next day on February 14th, and this time the effort included police volunteers, canine units, and dive teams. Wait, dive teams? I'm looking at this picture still, and I'm not seeing huge bodies of water around it. No, I was thinking the same thing. I'm not sure if it's because it was a small town in Indiana that's all they had available. They kind of summoned all backup, but it is an interesting team to bring on to look for the girls. Around noon that day on Valentine's Day, two bodies were found in a wooded area about half a mile from the bridge. The bodies were found on the shoreline of Deer Creek, and even though the Monon High Bridge and surrounding area is public land, the bodies were actually found on private property, roughly 40 acres that kind of backed up to the public land. After the bodies were found, authorities immediately did a press conference around like 2 p.m. that day, so truly two hours after finding the bodies. They said they found two bodies. They did not provide any kind of identification. And for the first time, they say that foul play is suspected. I can only imagine the small town panic that ensued after hearing that foul play was suspected. There were two bodies. I'm sure everyone's assuming that it's Abby and Libby, even though police aren't quite saying that. Well, and I can't imagine what it'd be like to not only be the parents of Abby and Libby, but to be the parents in this community at all. Because now you're thinking, wait, we were told that there was no murderer at large, and now we know there is. Mm -hmm. My kids would be staying home. They would be on one of those little leashes that you see at Disney World where like the toddlers are attached to a leash. <laughs> I don't care if they were 16 years old. I'd be like, sweetie, put on your leash backpack. You're staying in, like in a five-foot radius of me. I would pay money to watch you chase around a teenager on a leash. <laughs> I think I know too much. This podcast has taught me too much that if I was a parent, I would be quite an overprotective one. That's in our future, Lisa. At the time, officials only told the public that the girls' bodies were posed and that the suspect took undisclosed trophies from each victim. That terrifies me. That is a serial killer trait through and through to take a trophy from someone. And according to an FBI search warrant that was released years later, it's now known that the girls had lost a large amount of blood, and it's noted that there were no signs of a struggle or a fight. 
which just makes it even more confusing. Yeah, to me, that immediately says that there was a weapon involved. Something threatening the girls, especially if it's two of them, there's no fight, there's a lot of blood, and things are missing. Autopsies were conducted the next day, but to this day, they have not released how the girls died. At that time, police only confirmed the identities of the bodies found as those of Libby and Abby, and they said the case was being investigated as a double homicide. We talk a lot about this small town of Delphi, and the town really rallied around the families the day before, the day of the funerals, and even up until this date of our recording. It's really amazing to see that little Midwest vibe come together. There was a visitation held on February 18th at Delphi Community Schools, and thousands of people showed up to pay their respects. It was originally scheduled from 4 to 8, but that was extended to 1030 because of the huge number of people who showed up. Well, and if you're saying thousands, that might be the entirety of the town, which is impressive. Not only that they cared so much for these girls that maybe they didn't even know, but just showing support for the family, I'm sure, meant a lot. Absolutely. The same day, there was a motorbike ride held to raise money for the families of Abby and Libby. And later that evening, the community released lanterns into the sky in memory of the girls. It's truly like just out of a movie. I mean, Small town, rallies around family, does all these things to show their support. But at the end of the day, I I would be wondering, is that killer here? Like within Absolutely. that mob of people, you know, it's just a scary thought. Yeah, I wonder if everyone is just kind of looking over their shoulder at this point. And I read that there were investigators who were just in normal people clothing, like normal people trying to just blend in. But I'm sure that they were scouting the area. Both of the funerals were private and separate, but people who attended were really vocal about what they saw. I do not give Reddit any credit, but one unverified rumor that's given a lot of credibility is that during the girls' funerals, they were both wearing scarves around their neck. To me, that indicates something happened that they, by they, I mean investigators, didn't want the general public to know. And they were kind of trying to cover that during their funeral. See, and that's so strange to me because that, Immediately, we think things like strangulation and things that would leave bruising in that area, yet strangulation doesn't have a lot of blood loss. So things are not adding up here. And especially if you're close enough to strangle someone, that is incredibly personal. And it would be very hard to do two people at the same time. This is, it gets more confusing. That's the thing. The two girls and one, you know, the suspect. And at this point, they haven't said there's only one, but it kind of is alluding to that. You know, they're looking for one suspect. So definitely odd. Let's get back to the timeline because while the town was mourning and the girls were being laid to rest, Indiana State Police and the FBI were hard at work trying to solve the crime. On February 15th, just two days after the murder, Indiana State Police released a photo of a man seen walking on the trail around the time the girls disappeared. Elise, can you describe this man to our listeners? Well, Dad, I'm so sorry if you hear this podcast because <laughs> it kind of it looks like he has like the same stature as my dad. He's wearing like a canvassy sort of looking coat, but he's definitely all bundled up, which is interesting because she wasn't in the pictures. And I mean, that could mean absolutely nothing considering she was you know, doing a little photo shoot. She's trying to show the OOTD. But he is definitely very bundled up. It looks like he has a scarf or something around his neck. It's very blurry. I was going back and forth between the pictures you sent, and I couldn't tell, besides his mustache, if he had much facial hair or not. But he has a hat down, like really low, covering his eyebrows. And to say this picture is ominous would be a massive understatement. You can tell from the two different frames that you sent me that it looks like he is in pursuit of these girls. His eyes are laser-focused on them. He is headed in their direction. Agree. Even though it's a little bit of a blurry photo, Elise nailed it on the head. He's kind of this broad-shoulder man who is bundled up. You can barely see his face, but you do get a few characteristics. And that's what the police use to make this um, sketch that we're going to talk about in just a second. But along with the photo of the man, they also release an audio recording of a man's voice saying, down the hill, which we're going to play right now. Why they chose this small piece of audio, I'm not sure. It's short. I don't know if anyone can actually pull a description from this. It kind of sounds like every Midwest guy. But law enforcement was very tight-lipped around this person. 
At first, they said he was not a suspect. They just knew that he was there the time the girls were, and he want, they wanted to talk to him. So police set up a tip line for information. They invite the guy to come forward, kind of clear his name. And then the next day, nothing happened. So they name him a suspect. They basically say, you're number one suspect. We know you were there. You haven't come forward to clear your name. And now we're looking at you under a microscope. Well, absolutely. If you're sitting there watching the news and a sketch comes out or a picture and you're like, oh, my gosh, that's me. And you had nothing to do with it. I would absolutely be calling in. Right. I'd be jumping. I'd be driving down there 70 miles an hour like that's me. But swear I'm innocent, you know. Yeah, I was just picking wildflowers. I was taking my OOTD of this Carhartt <laughs> outfit on the bridge. Come on. <laughs> exactly. During that press conference, it also came to light how law enforcement had this video and audio. It turns out that that was found on Libby's phone. That is so sad to me because here you have this 14-year-old has her phone out taking photos of her friend. And then on that same phone, this video is captured saying down the hill. The man is on it. I just feel like she knew something was off. Well, and it changes the context of the picture dramatically now, because if I'm right, I'm imagining that she's not walking towards this man. So now she's filming sort of over her shoulder because she knows something is off here. And that is so incredibly sad. Of course, this is a tragedy nonetheless, but to have any type of forewarning where those girls are in a state of panic makes it makes it even all the worse. It's so sad. At this point, police say they're conducting a statewide manhunt for the man, and they urge Hoosiers to call in tips. Excuse me? What's a Hoosier? A Hoosier? Yeah. A Hoosier is basically someone who lives in Indiana. All my fellow Hoosiers out there, I'm sure you played um, the song, What is a Hoosier? Who made up that name? What is a Hoosier? Don't you think it's strange? Clearly, I'm not a singer. That's why I kind of chanted that. Annie, that, that song doesn't even give the answer. The song it is doesn't. asking the same question I am. We need answers. Why are we Hoosiers? I've never heard of that in my whole life. <laughs> All of this was happening on February 20th, just one week after the murders happened. FBI got involved and they said the suspected killer is a white man who weighs between 180 and 200 pounds. He stands between 5 feet 6 inches tall and 5 feet 8 inches tall. And he was wearing blue jeans, a blue jacket or coat and a hoodie. So exactly as Elise described him. Good job, Elise. I thought he was a little taller than that, but your judgment was still pretty good. During all of this, Indiana State Police and FBI investigators executed a search warrant linked to a social media account called Anthony underscore shots. And this is our first person of interest in the case. They had started investigating this account and discovered that the account was run by a man named Kagan Klein who would use fake pictures of a male model to solicit nude photos of teenage girls between 2016 and 2017. Just a cruddy person. That is disgusting. Absolutely disgusting. During this search warrant, investigators found some pretty damning evidence that didn't directly involve Libby and Abby, but it did involve underage girls. Kagan was questioned by police 12 days after Libby and Abby were murdered because... It turns out that this account, Anthony underscore shots, was talking to Libby and her friend the night before her disappearance while she was at that sleepover. Okay, well, that is definitely a big piece of evidence when you have a, oh man, you guys got to see the picture, the comparison between the pictures he was using and himself. <laughs> Please understand I'm not it's wild. shaming his appearance in any way, but you would be very alarmed if uh, this guy showed up when you've been looking at pictures of a very tattooed, incredibly fit young man. You know what I wonder? Did they ever, when you were doing research for this, did they ever find whose pictures he was using? No. And, in, and on all the photos, they actually have blurred out that man's face. Well, yeah, because he's involved. They're trying to be like, he is not associated. Although he's covered in tattoos, so somebody knows who he is. I can't imagine sitting there and being like, uh, that's me. And I wasn't talking to these girls that got murdered, probably in a different state than you are. Because at this point, this case was all over the news. Oh, that poor guy. I know. I do feel bad for that male model. Kagan admitted to police that this account was, in fact, used to talk to underage girls. He told police that he would find girls, usually on Instagram, and then ask them to message him on Snapchat. Ugh. 
or other apps, which Snapchat back in the day may have been a popular app. Now we all know what it's used for. Okay. And PSA for all of our potentially younger listeners. First of all, if you're very young, this is not the podcast for you in the first place. But if someone wants to take your conversation to Snapchat, it's because those messages disappear. So proceed with caution, please. It's If they have good intentions, they don't need their messages to disappear. And I'm just going to leave it at that. So if someone wants to take your conversation from text or Instagram over to Snapchat, you might be getting some unsolicited you-know-what coming through. I would say run. And that was your PSA from Case of the Sunday Scaries. The more you know. (laughs) Investigators also believed that two different people were using this account to solicit nudes and talk to underage girls because of different wording and tones that the account would put out. Kagan did admit in an interview that he gave his password to that account to, quote, a lot of people, one of which being his father. Oh, okay. So pedophile breeds pedophile. Not saying that's the case always, but that is disgusting behavior. I wonder ooh, I wonder what Keegan's life was like growing up because his father is clearly a trash human. Yeah, it's a family affair for sure. The biggest piece of news that came out of this investigation was that Kagan was supposed to meet up with Libby on the Monon High Bridge the day that she died. Apparently, Libby was absolutely enthralled with Anthony's shots. I mean, how could you not be? He's this dreamy male model with tattoos, a six-pack, like nice hair. I mean, he's a super attractive person, and he's giving Libby all this attention. She's 14. The naiveness shows, and that's okay. I mean, she's just a little kid who's a creep is talking to. But that, I think, was really the red flag where they were like, oh, you were supposed to meet up with her, and now she has been murdered. You're suspect number one. Case closed, done and done. You were supposed to meet up with her. But I do want to just say, I get it. I did not have Snapchat or Instagram. Yeah, I'm aging myself here. But I remember being that age and talking on, what were those even called? Like chat rooms. Remember chat rooms? Like chat roulette. Yes. And I would talk to God knows who. And it was just so fun when all those people are paying attention to something you said. And I didn't even know what these people look like. They mean, they could be like creepy creeps sitting in mama's basement and I would have no idea. So I can't imagine how it would feel for like someone whose frontal lobe isn't quite developed yet. You're only 13, can't do a whole lot of good decision making. And this beautiful man is showing you all this attention. I mean, come on, this is like freshmen getting attention from a senior situation. You're always going to, you know, entertain it. Yeah, that's the perfect way to put it. In August of 2020, Keegan was arrested on 30 child pornography and exploitation charges that stemmed from the search warrant that related to Abby and Libby. Investigators seized six devices from Kagan, including smartphones, a tablet, and an iPod Touch. He recently had a hearing about a month ago on October 22nd, and his trial is set for January 23rd, 2023. This is not the last we're going to hear of Keegan because this next piece is really interesting to me. Keegan spoke to a news producer in a jailhouse interview on December 9th, 2021. In that interview, Kagan confirmed that, yes, his father had access to the Anthony Schatz account, and he told the producer, they knew it was my dad that killed Abby and Libby. Okay, so where's dad? Those two, Keegan, his dad, can go sit with Jared from Subway in jail for the rest of time. However, he's calling his dad a murderer. Like, did we look into this any further? Yeah, so to this day, they have not released any more information in Kagan's involvement or his dad's involvement with the Delphi murders. But they did take Kagan out of jail for a brief bit of time in August of this year for more investigating. But the reason for that is not known. So they have never really cleared his name in connection with the Delphi murders. They're kind of just more being up in the air with it. So I honestly have no idea right now. But hopefully we find out more soon. I will say I don't want to give Keegan any credit at all because he is exactly where he belongs. But his body frame does not match the person that was caught in that video. Agree. He's He looks really tall, even from his mugshot. And they've described that person of interest, the suspect on the bridge, as like 5'6 to 5'8. So agree. And just other things like 
even the posture kind of doesn't match. But Well, and let's just call a spade a spade. He is significantly wider than the man on the bridge. Back to the timeline. I say that a lot during this episode because I kind of go on these little, uh, an infamous Elise tangent whenever I'm talking (laughs) about these suspects because they all play these huge roles in the Delphi case and it's important to talk about them. But we're back to March 17, 2017, so a little over a month after the girls' murders. And this is when another key player to the case emerges. I'm not calling him a suspect or even a person of interest, but Indiana State Police, the FBI, and Carroll County Sheriff's Department served a search warrant at the property where the bodies of Abby and Libby were found. Remember, the bodies were found on a private piece of land that kind of backed up to the hiking trails and woods. The property owner was named Ron Logan, and he was not a suspect in the murder, but he was subsequently arrested on a probation violation and sentenced to prison because, it turns out, on the day of the murders, he violated his probation because he drove to a city dump. That was totally against his rules and he was not supposed to be driving. And if they're suspecting him at all, it would make sense. I've read in quite a few cases where if they can arrest you for any tiny little charge, it's 100% going to happen because that means they can hold you for a certain amount of days, depending on what state you're in, why those charges are being processed. And that means you're not at home messing up any evidence potentially They know exactly where you are. You're not a flight risk while you're sitting in jail. So that way they can really get their ducks in a row and see if he is a suspect in this. That makes so much sense because my thought was like they have way bigger fish to be frying versus Ron Logan, who was driving to a city dump on the day of the murders. But holding him and making sure that he can't get rid of any evidence does make a little bit more sense. Thank you, Investigator Elise. (laughs) Got my detective hat on anytime you need it. I'm not going to lie, though. When this case was still really new, this guy threw up so many red flags to me. He had a violent past, which his past girlfriends had confirmed. The bodies were found literally 1,400 feet away from his house. But the biggest thing that stood out to me was that Ron Logan lied about his alibi on the day of the murders. Ron told authorities that he was picked up by a friend on February 13th between 2 and 2.30 so that he could go to the aquarium store. He's just spending his day getting a little lucky lizard for himself. Turns out that Ron had spoken to a friend slash family member, different sources say different things, and instructed that person to tell the cops about this trip and say that he returned home between 5 and 5.30. This would make it almost impossible for him to have committed these murders because He was not there while the girls went missing. Investigators found out that Ron lied about his alibi, making statements that were found to be factually false and intentionally designed to deceive law enforcement. And that's according to the search warrant. Ron's alibi friend slash family member confirmed, at first confirmed the trip to the police and said, yep, Ron was with me, all is good. Then he later came back two days later and said that he had actually lied. His reason being was because Ron told him to and because that Ron had never asked him to lie in the past. Doesn't make sense to me. Um, Not only does it not make sense, but when two girls go missing and suddenly your friend who has never asked you to lie wants you to lie about your whereabouts that day, I am doing the exact opposite. Now to their face, I might be like, yeah, man. Yeah, Ron, of course. Okay. Hang up. 911. Immediately immediately like that fact that oh well ron's never lied to me before makes it even more sketchy and the bodies were found on his property i would not want to be involved with that at all but like i said it later came out that ron drove to the dump so he was arrested to elise's point probably to look farther into him but hindsight is 2020 ron was cleared of any involvement with this crime and ron did pass away in january of this year so i just want to be really clear that He's no longer with us. He's not a suspect. We're just going to move on from Ron Logan, even though he did fit the bill at one point. In July 2017, five months after the crime, police released a composite drawing based on the testimony of eyewitnesses who saw a man walking near the bridge on the Delphi Historic Trails at the time the girls are believed to have disappeared. They also used that ominous video that was on Libby's phone to pull forth this drawing. The man in the sketch appears to be in his 40s or 50s. He has kind of a flat mouth, a little bit wider nose. Not really sure how they managed to pull that forth, but it's a pretty descriptive sketch. Um, Elise, what do you think? Sure, they, you know, with technology that they have available to them, especially the FBI, were able to clear up that video from what we're seeing compared to 
what they were able to see. But the only thing that rings true is kind of the structure of the man. Like we were talking about broad shoulders. He does have like the center line of his lips is incredibly flat, almost downturn. And that matches. But who knows? I mean, it's such a blurry photo. I just don't know. Our next suspect is in Colorado. Somehow our cases always end up here without us even trying. And this case is totally staying with the theme. This person is named Daniel Nations. If you're familiar with this crime, that's probably sending up chills on the back of your spine because for a while, this person was really looked at not only by law enforcement, but also by people who followed along with this case. He has since been cleared of any connection with the Delphi murders, but for a while, he was not. At the time of the murders, in February 2017, Daniel Nations was living homeless in Indiana, close-ish to Delphi. According to the maps, the county that he was in is about one hour and 41 minutes from Delphi. He checked in with the Morgan County Sheriff's Department on February 14th, as was required of him as a homeless sex offender. After this check-in, Daniel missed his next check-in and it was discovered that he was no longer in Indiana. Fast forward to a few months later, it's now September of 2017, and Daniel was found a few states away in Colorado when police say he was driving with expired Indiana plates. This arrest came near a trail where a bicyclist had been shot two weeks prior and where hikers complained of being threatened by a man with a hatchet. The man was Daniel Nations. A hatchet. I mean, you said he was cleared, but he better be in jail. He did serve time, but he was looked at because of his timing during the murder. So he was in Indiana. He obviously has some kind of violent past if he's threatening people with a hatchet. And then I think just having this expired license plate kind of put everything into action to get the police there. So two detectives boarded a flight and they went out to Colorado to interview Daniel about the Delphi murders. People, including Daniel's wife, thought that Daniel matched the sketch law enforcement put out and that was created after seeing the video. I kind of agree with this. I mean, they have the same lower face structure, so they kind of do look alike. But a lot of people, because this picture is so grainy, a lot of people could be this guy. Like I said, if you told me it was my dad, I might believe you. I mean, my dad wouldn't be like creepily stalking someone in the woods, but it's not detailed enough to really make out exactly like I said. You can tell he has a mustache, but does he have facial hair? Does he not? What color is the facial hair? You just can't tell because he's all bundled up. Agree. I kind of think that law enforcement was just desperate for a suspect, number one, to ease the town who were who was still all on panic. And number two, to give justice to the victims and their families. But the Indiana State Police questioned Daniel, and this is what they put out. They said, quote, there has been no information developed to specifically include or exclude him in the Delphi case. OK, that is the equivalent of a press conference going, maybe, maybe not. Like, we don't want to commit, but we kind of think he might fit the bill, but we don't want to say that. It's just weird. I, I just kind of think that. He checked a lot of the boxes, but not quite enough to bring him to trial. It sounds like he could just be or they could just be pacifying during this press conference to be like, hey, we don't know if it's him, but this is our statement that we are still looking into this case heavily and pursuing leads. He later faced charges in Johnson County for failing to register as a sex offender. After Dino Nations was kind of cleared, the case, I don't want to say it went cold because truthfully... This case was never cold. I credit the investigators and the people of Delphi for continuing to talk about the case, but it did slow down a little bit in terms of leads and tips that came in. There were small updates here and there that kept the case in the media. One was a new sketch of a different suspect that came out in 2019. This sketch is a much younger person. Police emphasized that the new sketch of the suspect's face is not supposed to match the previous one. They are now saying it's a different person who they think was on the trail the day of the murders. This part made me think there's two people involved. They've never really come out and say that, but to have two very different sketches and for law enforcement to want to talk to both of them, once again, seems odd. That's like the theme of this case. I am not a detective, even though I like to fancy myself one on this podcast sometimes. But my gut instinct says no, because unless it was someone like the who was the gross catfisher? What was his Kagan. name? Kagan. Kagan Klein. So unless it was someone like Kagan who had really put a lot of thought into like meeting up with the girls, making a plan, then otherwise this is truly a crime of opportunity if you're not aware of where these girls are going to be at that time. 
how would he know that there's going to be a snow day, one, and then you'd have to plot it with your buddy. It seems more like, oh, these two girls, I found them in the woods. They're all by themselves, not at school where they would have been normally between one and three o'clock, I would imagine, or doing sports or all the other activities that they're involved in. It seems more to me like this is an opportunistic thing. Well, and you'd have to know that you're guaranteed to have two victims on the bridge that day. So to your point, I completely agree. It definitely sounds opportunistic. A couple years pass. It's now Halloween of this year, 2022. I'm like fully decked out in my share outfit. And this breaking news comes across all social media, all news channels. My mom was sending me updates. Elise, I was blowing up your phone like I talked about earlier. And they now are saying that they have a suspect in the crime. Not a person of interest, not someone they want to talk to, but a whole damn suspect. This arrest happened on October 26, 2022. The man is named Richard Allen, and he's from Delphi, Indiana. Here's what we know so far. This case is being updated daily, but as of this recording, here's everything we have. First, he's 50 years old. He lives in Delphi. He's a father to some kids who will remain anonymous, as always. And he has been happily married for over 30 years. So kind of your all-American man. I mean, he worked at CVS as a pharmacy technician. He was known as a quiet guy by his colleagues. Currently, he's being held in a secret location at an unnamed state facility. He was moved out of Carroll County Jail for his own safety. Um, with the high profileness of this case, that completely makes sense to me. They don't want him anywhere near the people of Delphi. Let's be honest here. People that hurt children don't do very well or are suspected of hurting children don't do very well in jail. No, not at all. There was this story I came across, which, Elise, I want to know if you think it's weird because I totally do. So around the time of the girls' funerals, a woman in Delphi who I read was a family member went to CVS to print off photos of Abby and Libby. And because Richard worked at CVS, he refused to charge her a penny for these photos. I think it's odd. No, that tracks for me. I mean, if you are a person that isn't involved in this, just an innocent bystander, you would want anything to be done for this family. And if a family member is coming in to print off photos of like missing person posters, yeah, I would get my checkbook out. Well, no, I wouldn't. I don't have a checkbook. I'd get my debit <laughs> card out and pay for them, even if I was just someone behind them in line. They're going okay. through enough, right? True. Fair. Fair. Okay. What about this other photo that came forward? It's of Richard Allen and his family, and his daughter is posing in what appears to be the exact location where Abby and Libby were last seen. Weird or no? Weirder, but you already said that this is a place where a lot of families take photos and senior pictures, etc., so that still, to me, sounds like a coincidence. Okay, last one. This photo was posted by Richard's wife on Facebook, and it shows him with this big smile on his face, and, it's, and he is standing in front of what appears to be a police sketch of the murder suspect. Weird or no? That's weird. Yeah, Finally, that's one weird. for three. <laughs> because if you, are, if you look like the police sketch, and like I said, it's the police sketch is great. The photo is a little bit grainy, and by a little bit, I mean a lot. So it truly could be anyone. But he does have a resemblance. I don't think I would be posing next to that, being like, oh, look, I look like the person who killed two 13-year-old girls you know, around Valentine's Day. That wouldn't be my first thought. But also, if his wife posted it, does she somehow have knowledge that we don't know about this? Is Yeah, that one's weird. That one's weird. If at the very, very least, it is incredibly insensitive. Very, very, very good point. Um, I have praised law enforcement investigators up until this point, but I'm about to do a hard 180 because as it turns out, Richard Allen was interviewed in 2017. He went to the police and told them that he was on the trail that day, but he did not see the girls. This happened a few days after the girls were murdered. He told investigators that, yes, he had been on the moon on High Bridge between 1.30 and 3.30 on that day, which lines up exactly with the window in which the girls died. The critical piece of information was overlooked due to a clerical error. Of course it was. A civilian FBI employee mislabeled or misfiled tip information in the system, which means it didn't show up in the correct location during a data search. As the case stalled, probably over the summer, 
police went back to the very beginning of the investigation, and that's when they discovered the interview with Richard Allen that prompted them to take a closer look at him. That's mind-blowing to me. I know we there's always going to be errors with any kind of career, but this this was a big one. Yeah. Really if big a man error. that is matching the appearance that they caught on video and is saying, hi, um, I was there. And I was there at the exact time the girls were there. I was in the exact place. Um, just a heads up. Again, I was there. You think that that would be like highlighted, underlined, exclamation point. This goes to the top of the pile because even though someone's coming forward, we know by now, I'm sure, that even if someone seems nice and sweet and innocent and family man, you have people like the Golden State Killer, who was a family man for years and yet had done some of the worst atrocities that we know of. This should still go to the top of the pile. Agree. And the other thing is that he's a potential witness. He said he was there on the day between 1.30 and 3.30, the exact time that's happened. Maybe he doesn't remember seeing something and then it comes back to him. Like multiple reasons why he should have been, like you said, bumped the top of the list. As of Tuesday of this week, Richard's probable cause affidavit has been released. And this was kind of to the dismay of a few people, which I'll get into in a second. The main question I had, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners have, is okay, so how does this seemingly random Delphi resident end up in the center of this crime? Yeah, he said that he went there, but there were other witnesses there as well. According to the affidavit, an unspent round from a gun owned by Richard was found just feet from the girls' bodies, and that's what they're using to tie Richard Allen to the murders. This evidence, paired with him going back to police in 2017 and saying he had been there, is what secures him as the suspect. Okay, I have some follow-up questions. Now, did it say in the affidavit that this was a spent round from a, the type of gun that he also owns? Or was there more ballistics done that it was confirmed it was his gun or the bullet was from his gun? Let me read that exactly from the affidavit and you can kind of help me break that down. On October 13th, 2022, investigators executed a search warrant of Richard Allen's residence in Delphi, Indiana. Among other items, officers located jackets, boots, knives, and firearms, including a Sig Sawyer Model P226 40 caliber pistol with the serial number U625627. Between October 14, 2022 and October 19, 2022, the Indiana State Police Laboratory performed an analysis on his gun the laboratory performed a physical examination and classification of the firearm, function test, barrel and overall length measurement, test firing, ammunition component characterization, microscopic comparison, and NIBIN. Okay. After this analysis, the laboratory then did their thing and investigators found the firearm was purchased by Richard in 2001. So is that saying... That's an exact match. Yeah. So from my very elementary education when it comes to anything firearms, um, basically none whatsoever. But from my <laughs> education watching Criminal Minds all 16 seasons <laughs> um, and some other shows, man, I need to get a hobby. The things that stick out to me most in the affidavit of what you just read is that they did a test firing. They're doing that not only to make sure the gun is in working order, it's not just something that was laying about, but because when you shoot a gun, it puts certain striations on the bullet based on something and kind of like a fingerprint for that gun. So then if they have a shell casing or a bullet left behind near the girls, they can like look up and see if that test fire bullet has the same striations as the one they found. And that's how they say it's not just the same type of gun. This more than likely this bullet came from this gun because these test fire bullets match the one that was left. Okay, that makes so much sense. Because yeah, that was a lot of words for me. And I've I think I've held like one gun in my entire life. I'm not really a gun toting gal, but that's my understanding um, is that that is what they use that test firing for is to make sure the gun's in working order and then to match it up like they said, with a microscope, make sure that all the striations that happen on that bullet and on that shell casing are all similar. And then they can know that it's specifically, or at least more than likely, 
it was that specific gun used. So that is not good evidence for Richard Allen then, because in an interview, he admitted that he never let anyone borrow that gun. So the question is, okay, you've never let anyone borrow the gun. There's an unspent shell casing there. How did it get there? If the gun's never left your, you know, your home or at least as far as you know, it hasn't. Wait, wait, wait. An unspent shell casing? Unspent. So that means it wasn't fired. So it's just chilling there? Hold on, hold on. I didn't catch that when you said it the first time. Maybe we're not understanding the definition. Let me make sure. Yeah, it simply means it has not been fired. So, like I said, when you fire the gun, that's when you're going to get all that striations on the bullet. But if it's just an unspent shell casing, that's that's shitty evidence. Excuse me, but it is. Yes, it was found near the girls. But what does that matter if this is like a wooded area? It would make sense potentially that there there's hunting going on in that area or target practice, something along those lines. And if that bullet has not gone through the gun or potentially, and I'm not trying to be gruesome here, through those girls, what does it have anything to do with this case? This makes so much more sense. Hold on. Unless they're saying that that's what he subdued them with. Maybe it wasn't the weapon in which they died, but it was like an intimidation weapon. Oh, how does the bullet fall out of the gun, I wonder? Well, like I mean, he, he could have I don't know. He could have bullets in his pocket, I don't know. But having a gun would definitely get the girls like you said there's no defensive wounds. It would definitely get the girls to do what he's bidding, right? Cuz if you have a gun at you, you're going to say, "Yes, sir, what do you want?" They say, "Jump." I say, "How high and on what leg?" Right? You're going to do everything that they say, especially two 13-year-old girls. So maybe it wasn't the weapon used in the homicide, but it was kind of the precursor to the homicide. That makes so much sense because I said this affidavit was released on Tuesday. We have that little short clip of someone saying down the hill that that was released years ago. But one recent finding is that ahead of that audio, one of the girls says gun. And then the suspect says, guys, down the hill. So law enforcement think that the teenager saw the gun. One of them says it, and then they have to follow the man. So that makes total sense if he's just threatening them with it. And if there was some sort of altercation, it would make sense if he had rounds with him, that that would be an unspent shell casing that would end up on the ground. If you are dragging bodies, perhaps, to a different location, if you are, God knows what he was doing, if it was him during this time. Things are probably going to be falling out of pockets, falling out all sorts of things in this. You know, maybe there wasn't a struggle while they were alive, but that is still some body weight that you are moving and positioning. Like, yeah, that's interesting. And their bodies were found 0.5 miles from the bridge. So, yeah, maybe he was pulling them and posing them and something fell out. Did we Look just at us. Solve this? And by us, I mean you. <laughs> One more piece of the affidavit that I want to cover. It came to be known that investigators had interviewed quite a few juveniles who saw this bridge man. This is new evidence that I am pulling information from. I don't mean to laugh, but bridge man is what we should absolutely call him because it reminds me immediately of like the three billy goats gruff and whoever did this is the (laughs) grossest kind of troll ever. So bridge man he is. I like it. So this next piece, I'm going to read directly off the affidavit. The names have been retracted, so I'm just going to say blank. Investigators spoke with Blank, who stated she was traveling east on February 13, 2022, and observed a male subject walking west away from the Monon High Bridge. Blank advised that the male subject was wearing a blue-colored jacket and blue jeans and was muddy and bloody. She further stated that it appeared he had gotten into a fight. A lot of the witnesses said that they saw a guy wearing blue Carhartt, blue jackets, blue hoodies, and jeans. But this is the only witness who sees him covered in mud and blood. I can only imagine what she's thinking. Like, this guy's coming out of the woods just looking real rough. She thinks he got into a fight. But looking back, she's probably like, oh, my gosh, I saw that murderer. Farther down in the affidavit, it talks more about Richard's arrest. I am once again going to read that directly off it. On October 13th, 2022, Richard Allen was interviewed again by investigators. He advised that he was on the trails on February 13, 2017. He stated he saw juvenile girls on the trail of Freedom Bridge and that he went onto the Monon High Bridge. Richard Allen further stated he went out on the Monon High Bridge to watch the fish, 
Later in his statement, he said he walked out to the first platform on the bridge. He stated he then walked back, sat on a bench on the trail, and then he left. He stated he parked his car on the side of an old building. He told investigators he was wearing blue jeans and a blue or black Carhartt jacket with a hood. He advised he may have been wearing some type of head covering as well. He further claimed he saw no one except for the juvenile girls he saw east of the Freedom Bridge. He told investigators that he owns firearms and they are at his home. Richard Allen's wife also spoke with investigators. She confirmed that Richard did have guns and knives at the residence. She also stated that Richard still owns a blue Carhartt jacket. And then it goes into the um, search warrant that was executed. From that, we know that we found that gun. And that's kind of what's putting him at the scene of the crime and making him the number one suspect. The affidavit was interesting, like I mentioned earlier, because most people, including Libby's grandmother, the Carroll County prosecutor, and even a change.org petition with more than 41,000 signatures, did not want this affidavit to be unsealed. Everyone wanted it to stay sealed to retain the integrity of the investigation. One of Carroll County's prosecutors' main arguments in keeping the affidavit sealed is the belief that Richard Allen is not the only person involved in the case. The party that wanted the affidavit released was Richard and his defense team. Richard's defense attorney, Andrew Baldwin, said he wanted the documents publicly released because his team is, quote, not impressed with the lack of evidence in the document. He said the following, you're going to read that probable cause affidavit online or wherever they get it, and hopefully that's going to ring a bell for somebody to help us out because he is innocent. He has told us that very emotionally. He then went on to say, it's unusual for defense attorneys to push for information to be unsealed, but that's how confident the defense team is that Richard Allen is not guilty. I heard all this stuff from the defense attorney. I thought, number one, this guy is cocky. Number two, he's doing a good job representing his client because at the end of the day, he's a defense attorney. That's what he should do. But then Angela Gnote from Fox 59 released this press release. This press release came directly from the defense attorney for Richard Allen. It says the following. As Richard Allen's attorneys, we have received multiple requests from local and national media for interviews and comments since the unsealing of the probable cause affidavit. It would be virtually impossible to comply with these requests and continue to focus on the merits of Rick's defense. They also call Richard Rick, FYI. Therefore, we offer up these thoughts. The following is kind of what they are basing their argument on, and it's really compelling. Okay. So first, they say that Richard is a 50-year-old man who has never been arrested nor accused of any crime in his entire life. He is innocent and completely confused as to why he has been charged with these crimes. Number two, the police did not contact Rick after Libby German and Abby Williams went missing. Rather, Rick contacted the police and voluntarily discussed being on the trail that day. Like many people in Delphi, Rick wanted to help any way he could. Rick contacted the police to let them know that he had walked on the trail that day, as he often did. Without Rick coming forward, the police probably would have never had any way of knowing that he was on the trail that day. Number three, Rick volunteered to meet with a conservation officer outside of the local grocery store to offer up details of his trip to the trail and the day in question. Rick tried to assist with the investigation and told police that he did recall seeing three younger girls on the trail that day. His contact with the girls was brief and of little significance. Rick does not recall if this interaction with the conservation officer was tape recorded, but believes that the conservation officer scribbled notes on a notepad as Rick spoke to him. Number four, after Rick shared his information with law enforcement officials, he went back to his job at the local CVS and didn't hear from the police for more than five years. The next time Rick heard from the police was in October 2022. This was approximately two weeks before a contested sheriff's election and within days of a federal lawsuit filed against the Carroll County Sheriff's Office by its former second-in-command, Michael Thomas. In the lawsuit, Thomas claimed that he had made suggestions and offered assistance in the investigation of a high-profile child homicide investigation, but those suggestions and offers were rejected by the sheriff. Thomas further claimed that the sheriff and others in the department feared the disagreements with Thomas would become publicized 
as a result of the political campaign for the sheriff. Well, and I'm just going to say right away, the first few I can almost dismiss that doesn't prove that he's innocent or guilty because we know that a lot of times people, especially in a small town, maybe they don't have a big police force. It doesn't matter to me that he doesn't have a arrest history. It really doesn't. There's tons of people that do horrible things that aren't caught until they are, you know? Mm -hmm. But what does really kind of sway my opinion a little bit, or at least put a little question mark around him, is that election. And there's so many times when cases, especially high-profile cases, unfortunately become sort of a political standpoint. And you want to say like, hey, during my time, we got the guy. We arrested him. I can come out and say that I was the leader in all this. I was in charge. And especially when you have a lawsuit also going saying, hey, like they didn't do their due diligence. I was working for the force at the time. I tried to help. They weren't doing what they should have been doing. That's not exactly going to leave a very good impression on the public's mind if you're running for a reelection. So did they arrest him a little prematurely and just needed someone to say, this is our poster boy, I'm doing my job, we're still looking into this case, or did they have the adequate evidence to really arrest him? That, I mean, who knows if he's innocent or guilty, but that definitely, if I was a jury member with just the stuff that you've told me thus far, it would start creating some doubt. Well, this next part also is going to create some doubt. In the press release, it also says this, in the five plus years since Rick volunteered to provide information to the police, Rick did not get rid of his vehicle or his guns, and he did not throw out any of his clothing. He did not alter his appearance. He did not relocate himself to another community. He did what any innocent man would do and continued with his normal routine. The probable cause affidavit seems to suggest that a single magic bullet is proof of Rick's guilt. It's a bit premature to engage in any detailed discussions regarding the veracity of this evidence until more discovery is received, but it's safe to say that the discipline of toolmark identification, ballistics, is anything but a science. The entire discipline has been under attack in courtrooms across the country as being unreliable and lacking any scientific validity. We anticipate a vigorous legal and factual challenge to any claims by the prosecution as to the reliability of its conclusions concerning the single magic bullet. It's a lot to take in. Because it they bring is. up a lot of good points. They made mention way back when this case first happened of trophies that this killer took from the girls. Generally, those trophies are going to be kept by the person in question. And it's interesting that they recovered the jacket. They said it was a bloody scene, right? But that the jacket, mm-hmm. they didn't mention that it had blood on it. I would imagine if it did, he wouldn't have kept it around. You'd be burning that evidence right. real quick. And they searched his home, and they're not putting in the affidavit that you saw that they found said trophies from the girls. That certainly could be their, like, maybe they're holding that close to the chest. We don't know. But it would seem like that would be crucial evidence that they'd be looking for to pair up the killer of these women, or excuse me, a killer of these very young girls. Let's keep in mind how young these poor innocent girls Mm -hmm. were. That would be something of concern for me. Of like, well, what else do you have right now? Yeah, I I have no feeling on this one. I don't know because this is just big what if, it sounds like. It is. Richard is being charged with two counts of murder in the commission of a felony. And his trial is go- going to be in the spring of 2023. For the sake of Abby and Libby, first and foremost, their families, the people of Delphi, and even any of the suspects' families. I hope they have the right guy. But that's the thing. I hope they have the right guy, not just someone who they're pinning it on because of a sheriff election or because of the desperation the town's seeking. I I cannot fathom what they're going through. But it was a wild, uh, wild October and November for this case, for sure. We live in America. It is supposed to be innocent until proven guilty. So if Rick or Richard, however you want to call him, isn't the right guy, my God, his reputation will never be the same after this. Because until they get the right person, if he is the right person, go. Go right to jail. Do your time. This is a horrible thing that you did. If he is the wrong person, 
how do you recover from this until they find the right person? Everyone's going to be looking at you with a little, you know, cocked eyebrow if they don't have as much Botox as I do. And they're going to be giving you a look being like, what, you know, are you that person? How do you return to your job as your friendly medicinal provider? This man is handing out prescriptions. I would not want my prescription filled by someone who is suspected of murder. No, because there's always going to be people who think he got away with it. But I want to finish the episode by saying a little bit about what Libby's mom, Carrie, told one news article. And this is called The U.S. Sun. She said that she was taken by complete surprise by the arrest of Richard Allen. She said it's been extremely emotional. Of course, I'm excited and happy there's been an arrest, but he hasn't been proven guilty. It's all alleged, so it's not time to celebrate. She said it's been rather triggering because it's bringing everything back. And in a sense, I'm reliving everything over and over. Heartbreaking for the families. Um, Abby's family has been very silent since her murder. They just want to mourn in private, which I totally respect. But we'll keep everyone posted up on this case. Follow along at A Case of the Sunday Scaries. Um, And who knows, maybe in the spring we'll do a little update after Richard goes to trial because I am so curious to know what else is in that affidavit. They released seven pages, but I know there's more. And to at least your point, those trophies, still looking for them. Well, that was a wild ride, but I have to be honest. I don't feel any more settled or relieved after hearing this update. Um, I On purpose, I knew you were going to be covering this, so I was trying not to look into it so I could form an opinion just on what evidence you were bringing forward. And I have no opinion. It just is a tragic case that hopefully will be resolved. We will definitely. And you said maybe, but we will definitely be following along with this case and the <laughs> trial that's coming up in spring because I need a resolution. And I am just someone who is 100 degrees of separation away from this case. I hope for resolution for their family, justice for the girls. But thank you, Annie, for going through all of that. I am still tied up in knots, so I do not thank you for that part of it. But I'm going to be coming back next week. This will hopefully be our last audio-only podcast. We will be diving into the world of YouTube after that one, so you can follow along there. We will give all of the details on our Instagram page. But next week's case is one I think many of you probably haven't heard about. It wasn't really highly publicized, and it's a doozy. So like, grab your tissues, get ready. It is a wild ride, but it is one that struck a lot of interest to me because, as many of you know, I'm obsessed with the psychology of why. Why did these things happen? And that's what I normally cover. But in this case, we're more covering the psychology of one of the victims of the crime. So, as always, catch us next Sunday. Stay tuned. But until then... (laughs) 